1: I'm Dr. Jeff Burns from Children's Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School. This is the 16th Pediatric COVID International Collaborative. Stephen, I'll turn this to you.
2: Thanks very much. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Associate Professor Peter Broden. Um, Peter's a pediatric immunologist and researcher who runs the Broden Lab located in the Life uh, Science for Life Laboratory in Karolinska Institute in Stockholm in Sweden. And Peter recently published an incredible uh, article, The Immunology of misc with COVID-19 infections. And-
3: Thanks for having me. It's, been, it's a pleasure to present some of our work here. The work that I'm going to talk to you a little bit about today, we're going to switch gear completely and, and talk about some basic immunology um, related to this pandemic. And the work that we do in my lab uh, currently is to compare these different presentations, all arising from SARS-CoV-2 infections, which are Mild to severe acute COVID 19 infections and the hyperinflammation that's seen there. Miss C, obviously, and then now more recently we've gotten involved in the long COVID, long haulers sort of presentation. So the work I'm going to talk about today briefly it relates to these two recently published papers coming out of our lab. In the left one, there is a study that we performed in mostly adult patients with acute COVID. Um, And the work that we do basically aims to try to profile the immune system in a more holistic manner using some state-of-the-art literature, all white blood cells, uh, hundreds of plasma proteins and cytokines, as well as uh, gene expression and other things, all in the same blood sample to try to get a global view of the immune system. Um, Another thing that's very important here is that each and every patient is very different from one another based on genetics and environmental differences and so on. So one of the uh, rationales here is to try to follow patients with many samples longitudinally collected to try to get at the dynamics of the response, both in the left uh, context of acute infection, but also on the right when we're comparing uh, MIS-C and Kawasaki disease in this case. So here's a complex slide, and I'm gonna talk you through it. On the top right there, we see an example of uh, blood samples collected at these different time points. And what I'm showing you are samples from one patient and focusing in on the eosinophil, so the the cell type in the blood that is typically associated with allergies and asthma. Um, What we're finding here is that in this particular patient who is an acute COVID-19 patient who came into the hospital, presented in a sort of classical uh, COVID way, um, and then developed ARDS around day six. What we see, and, and obviously it was put on a ventilator and severely ill patient in the ICU. What we see is right before the ARDS developed, this patient had a dramatic expansion of a particular type of eosinophil in the blood. And we were able to trace through this longitudinal sampling that these cells were going to the lung and presumably um, being, you know, playing a role in the development of ARDS. At least that's one hypothesis that we generate from this work. And on the lower side, I'm showing the same patient sampled at these multiple days. Um, And in this case, we see a particular population of monocytes um, that also expand in a very transient manner, but happening right around the time of ARDS development. And what I'm trying to show you with these sort of complex images is that by having these kind of systems level analysis of the immune system and a very deep longitudinal profile, we can learn some things about how the immune system responds, how these this presentations occur, and, and possibly also how we might treat them. So uh, when we started hearing reports from this webinar, actually, Mike Levin and other colleagues around the Europe and, and around the world, reporting about this presentation uh, of patients with a Kawasaki-like presentation, Um, we we began to think that we should try to contribute with the methods that we have in place. So we teamed up with colleagues in Rome at the Bambino Yeso Children's Hospital, um, and we actually had already a sample collection ongoing or a sample set of Kawasaki disease patients collected in the years prior. Um, And so what we were able to do was to do a in-depth immunological analysis of um, Miss c patients treated in Stockholm uh, as well as in Rome, Kawasaki disease patients treated in the years prior in Rome, healthy children as well as uh, some children with mild SARS-CoV-2 infection, basically asymptomatic most of them. So I'll talk you through a few of the results in this paper um, given the limited time I have and the first thing I wanted to highlight is that both Miss c and acute COVID with severe disease are diseases with hyperinflammation So the, and, and it was not clear initially whether the same types of treatments that were currently being used for acute COVID would also be suitable for MIS-C patients. So one way to try to understand whether that would be a good approach or not would be to try to profile in depth the hyperinflammatory response. So this is what we did. And what I'm showing you on the left is a summary principal component analysis of these 112 different plasma proteins. And what this shows basically is that all the adult patients, both ICU and non-ICU patients with acute COVID-19, they cluster together in the top left corner. All of the Kawasaki disease patients from the previous years cluster in the top right corner with a few of the MIS-C patients overlapping them. And then the rest of the MIS C patients are at the bottom. So there are clearly three discrete groups, which basically means that the type of hyperinflammation or cytokine storm, if you will, are qualitatively different in these patients. Um, and when we zoom in and we remove the adult patients with acute COVID and we focus specifically on the differences between Kawasaki disease patients collected prior to SARS CoV 2, um, and and compare those to kids with mild um, SARS-CoV-2 infection and MIS-C, we see that the Kawasaki disease patients all end up on the right side, if you look at the zoomed-in principal components um, in the middle, while the MIS-C patients basically intersect the healthy and the Kawasaki disease patients. And we can actually zoom in and look on the individual plasma proteins that contribute to this uh, distribution and what we do find then is that Kawasaki disease is associated with strong induction of IL-17, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine produced by specific T cells. While, um, and there's also abundant IL-6 in circulation in Kawasaki disease patients. Um, and, and also arising from this work was um, plasma proteins associated typically with arterial inflammation, arteritis and, and vasculitis are much higher in Kawasaki disease patients than in MIS-C or kids with mild uh, COVID-2 infection. Um, Another thing that we thought were interesting to look at was the uh, serological responses, both to SARS-CoV-2, but also to other coronaviruses. And so we profiled some of the MIS-C patients and and also the kids with mild SARS-CoV-2 infection, and we found no difference in the ability or the the, uh, titers of Uh, SARS-CoV-2 specific IgG. This has been reproduced uh, by other groups as well, and now in a couple of papers. Um, So they do seem to have antibodies, obviously, and that's one of the diagnostic criteria for MIS-C patients. But when we compared these groups uh, with respect to uh, common cold coronaviruses, there were some stark differences. So what I'm showing on the right side here is um, basically antibodies, IgG antibodies in the blood of these different children towards different coronavirus species. And and what we find is that MIS-C patients actually are the only ones that do not have any IgG antibodies to common cold coronaviruses. And they clearly differ from patients with Kawasaki disease and also young children with mild SARS-CoV-2 infection. Whether this plays a role in the development of MIS-C, we have no idea, but it is an observation that I think bears mentioning. The final thing that we observed in these patients, which I think has some in- importance in, in thinking about how this disease arises, is to try to, what we, what we did basically is we profiled serum samples from these MIS-C patients, as well as the Kawasaki disease patients against uh, antibody uh, binding of human proteins, so autoantibody binding, basically looking for targets of a possible autoimmune reaction. And we found several of those, uh, some shared between Kawasaki disease patients and MIS-C, but there were a few that were clearly distinct and and specific to MIS-C. And I wanted to highlight this one group of proteins, which are on the left side there. Um, By the way, the way this assay is done is you have a glass slide with protein fragments printed onto it, and then you add a serum sample from the patient and you look for what binds um, and then um, we testing against over 9000 uh, human proteins. So it's a pretty, pretty broad, uh, high, sort of high throughput assay. Basically, what we find is that in MIS-C patients, there are much more abundant antibody binding of a group of protein called casein kinases. And uh, most of you probably haven't heard about these groups of proteins, but what's intriguing about them is that they're widely distributed across different tissues in the body. And uh, a recent study from Nevan Krogan's lab at UCSF, um, shown on the right, has has elucidated how these particular proteins are upregulated in cells upon SARS-CoV-2 infection. So what I'm showing you on the right is an image from the press release of the San Francisco study which basically shows that these cells that are infected with the viruses, they extend these protrusions from the cell membrane to infect nearby cells. And those protrusions are mediated by a casein kinases. And so what we believe is happening potentially in MIS-C is that these uh, children infected with SARS-CoV-2 develop autoantibodies against such casein kinase proteins Uh, possibly mediating uh, at least some of the symptoms in this c That's a hypothesis that we're trying to follow up right now. This is the group that I'm working with and and I'm happy to take questions if you have any. Thank you very much. Uh,
1: Peter, that was just simply uh, a wonderful and clear overview of some complex science. Could, um, could I ask you this one question? As you heard last month from the American College of Rheumatology, uh, first-line therapy for MIS-C right now is IVIG and glucocorticoids, as, as they recommend it. And they reserve anakinra for cases where IVIG might be contraindicated. From your work and in your with your clinical immunology hat on, uh, do you see any reason to um, adjust, alter, revise um, those guidelines?
3: I can, I can comment on that. We have a slightly different take where I work at the Karolinska University Hospital. We, we often find it troubling to distinguish MIS-C patients from severe bacterial infections. And we've had a few cases of sort of uh, believed to be MIS-C patients, but turned out to be uh, severe bacterial infections. And so we are a little bit weary about starting out with glucocorticoids. And IVIG, in that sense, would be less risky, in my opinion, and would cover also many bacterial infections. Um, we're also less worried about anakinra in that respect. And so we would prefer to initialize therapy with uh, IVIG and anakinra, and then reserve steroids in those cases where we are not entirely sure whether there might be a bacterial infection um, involved. And so, um, yeah, that would be that. Uh, Based on the cytokine responses that we see, it's very difficult to say that an elevated cytokine should be targeted with a particular treatment because it's more about interpreting the pathways involved. And that also speaks to the relevance of anakinra, in my opinion, over, for example, tocilizumab. Um, Yeah.
1: Peter, absolutely. Um, On behalf of the entire pediatric community, uh, keep going. Uh, Your work is just wonderful. uh, Peter, I, I want to have you back uh, in the future because the productivity in your lab will uh, undoubtedly justify it. I'm going to turn back now to Sydney and to uh, Stephen to introduce our final segment.
2: Great final sub segment: an update on mechanical ventilation for critical critically ill children with COVID-19, and it's a fantastic group uh, to present to you this afternoon. Uh, Robbie Kamani from the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, John Arnold from Boston Children's Hospital. Heidi Florey from the University of Michigan, and Peter Rimmensberger from Geneva, um, and I'll just hand straight over to them so we can get as much of the talk in as possible, thank you.
4: This is Robbie. Kamadi here, I'll get started, and then uh, Heidi and Peter will join in uh, towards the middle of the talk. Unfortunately, John uh, cannot make it today, he's on clinical service. Uh, that was a tough act to follow, that really was a, a wonderful presentation. So um, our goals here are to give a brief update on considerations for mechanical ventilation and COVID-19 in children. And really at the heart of the issue is, are these patients fundamentally any different than other children with ARDS? There have been some recent pediatric specific recommendations uh, for ventilator management and, and general care for the critically ill child, which has come out of ESPNIC, which we'll talk about. Uh, and we also want to address some issues related to timing of intubation and use of NIV. Uh, peat management as well as how aerosol generation should factor into this uh, decision making. So um, certainly there's been a lot of great epidemiologic data that's come out in the last uh, six months or so, uh, where we know children certainly can be affected by COVID-19 with perhaps a predominance in the adolescent age group. But what is clearly distinct is that you know we see that ARDS is only present in about two percent of our admissions and pneumonia in eleven percent, much different than what we see uh, in our adult uh, patients with COVID- 19. Uh, another, I think very important fact is that about half of the pediatric patients with respiratory symptoms in SARS-COV2 actually had another respiratory virus. So it may be that some of the clinical respiratory phenotype that we see is in fact more driven by the other respiratory virus than the SARS-CoV-2 um, and interestingly when we look at the chest CT findings um, uh, up to a third of these patients have normal CTs but there is a predominance of these ground glass opacifications arguing for more of an interstitial pneumonia type presentation as compared to you know only 20% that have more of that classic low bar infiltrate. So this leads to the question of whether COVID-19 uh, related ARDS is really the same as other forms. And certainly there are uh, significant overlaps, right? Most uh, of these patients will meet diagnostic criteria, have severe hypoxemia with heterogeneous lung disease, they have abnormalities in dead space. And certainly there is a large cohort or a cohort of these patients that have more classic ARDS type appearance. But there's also a, a, a large cohort with more of this interstitial lung disease picture, which results in less alveolar recruitment that's possible and more preservation in their respiratory system compliance, despite the fact that they're very hypoxemic. So perhaps these mechanisms of hypoxemia that are present in these more interstitial pneumonia patients are fundamentally different than what we more classically see with the the, um, severe ARDS patients we're used to. Uh, And certainly, um, high amounts of dead space are present with a lot of these patients, maybe related to these microvascular or even pulmonary embolus. So if we look to our adult colleagues, um, there is a interesting debate that's happening. Um, on, in one camp or is uh, Dr. Marini and Gattinoni, um, who believe that there are these two distinct phenotypes, uh, the L-type phenotype, which is really these interstitial pneumonia-type patients with ground glass infiltrates, more preserved respiratory system compliance. So then these patients are not PEEP responsive and generally, in fact, are not that dyspneic. In contrast, there are the more classic H-type ARDS patients that have extensive infiltrates and edema, have uh, more compromised respiratory system compliance, and these patients potentially can recruit with a higher PEEP strategy and oftentimes are presenting as being overtly dyspneic. So as a result, when you manage these patients on the ventilator, the L-type patients, they suggest using a lower PEEP strategy with perhaps a more liberal tidal volume in contrast to the the H-type where a higher PEEP strategy for recruitment and a lower tidal volume is what's preferred. Now, interestingly, if we think about the pre-intubation management, uh, if you look at their recommendations, the the target here is actually to avoid patient self-inflicted lung lung injury and target non-vigorous breathing. It's a little less about the degree of hypoxemia. In contrast, I'd say there's the, the other school of thought Um, that is uh, here being led by the Toronto group with Eddie Fan and Laurent Brochard and others um, that really advocate for a little bit more timely intubation for hypoxemia or, of course, if there is high evidence of work of breathing. And that fundamentally, there's not much of a different approach that's needed for ventilation, that we should be using conservative tidal volume strategies, maintaining low plateau pressures, maintaining low driving pressures. And perhaps the point that they may agree somewhat on um, in some ways is to individualize the PEEP management, that for some patients that have recruitable lung disease, we need to be using uh, you know, higher amounts of PEEP, but that we need to evaluate that response at the bedside. Next slide, please. Um, and so recently, um, Peter Remusberger actually was the, the lead author on this. This was just published uh, in Pete's Critical Care Medicine just a few days ago. Uh, there are recommendations that have come out of the estimate group about uh, caring for the child with COVID-19, and I've extracted here the, the ventilator and related recommendations. Um, and as you can see, these are, are really quite consistent with PALIC recommendations for ARDS and PEMVIC recommendations. That we should be targeting physiologic tidal volumes, but using lower tidal volumes for patients that have uh, decreased lung compliance. That for PEEP and FIO2 management, we should start with the low PEEP FIO2 grid from ARDSnet, but that we really need to titrate PEEP, trying to balance both oxygenation, hemodynamics, and potentially even lung compliance. That we need to maintain uh, inspiratory pressure limits for plateau pressure, as well as driving pressure, and embrace permissive hypercapnia. Uh, They have recommended the use of neuromuscular blockade in the first 48 hours if the patient has severe PARDS, or if there's really evidence of high amounts of spontaneous breathing at potentially high transpulmonary pressures, or if there's significant dyssynchrony. They do recommend prone positioning, particularly for those with more reduced lung compliance, although certainly I think prone positioning may be beneficial even for that hypoxemic patient that doesn't have that much reduced lung compliance with other mechanisms as we're seeing in in the adult patients. Uh, Inhaled nitric oxide should be considered certainly for those with pulmonary hypertension, but also if the thought is the predominant mechanism of hypoxemia for that patient is related to alterations in, hypoxia, in hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. Uh, they also recommend considering high frequency oscillator ventilation, uh, particularly for those patients with poor lung compliance or a poor oxygenation response despite adequate PEEP and other therapies. And then of course respiratory ECMO is an option um, if all else fails. Um, I'm going to pause here and I think we're just going to we're going to do a few questions here.
5: Hi Robbie. Hi. this is Heidi. I have a couple of questions for you. So tell us what should the approach be for non-invasive ventilation? Is there a preference? The question always comes up, is high flow nasal cannula better or worse than non-invasive ventilatory support? And many of the uh, PARDS COVID patients seem to have a very high FIO2 need and should we tolerate this high FIO2 need uh, compared to what our usual practice is?
4: Yeah, great question, Heidi. So I think from the standpoint of non-invasive ventilation, we, we do believe that um, uh, really what should be driving uh, the decision to intubate is based upon respiratory mechanics, work of breathing, and respiratory drive. So I, I do think that indeed we can tolerate a slightly higher FiO2 in these patients in more classic forms of ARDS, but only if their respiratory mechanics are good. So I think what's, what's really important here is that we should not be delaying intubation for patients that have high work of breathing. Um, and, and I think the other tough part of that question that you asked is we classically think that, that BiPAP or CPAP may be superior to high flow nasal cannula in more classic forms of ARDS because they're providing lung recruitment, but it may be that these patients in fact don't have much recruitable lung disease. So I think that, that question is still a good one. Next slide, please. Um, and if we, if we look at what we do in usual ARDS practice, So this is data that's come out of the PARTY study. um, And I think many of you were a part of this, 145 ICUs. Uh, We had 160 patients uh, who had uh, ARDS that were on non-invasive ventilation. Half of them got intubated within the first 24 hours. And what we see is that the degree of hypoxemia, i.e. those in green there that had the PF ratio less than 100, were the ones that were more likely to get intubated. So certainly there's a strong association between the degree of hypoxemia and the risk of being intubated in a lot of these more classic forms of ARDS. Next slide. But I think um, it still begs the question about, is that really the right marker, right? Should we be intubating based upon the degree of hypoxemia? And, And certainly some of our recommendations have tied those two together. This is, you know, the Aspinic recommendations that we start to think about intubating patients that have a PF ratio less than 200, or certainly in the Palic recommendations, we would say those with severe hypoxemia should be intubated. But I, I'm not sure that especially in these situations where you've got, um, you know, more of an interstitial pneumonia picture, that the hypoxemia alone should be the driver for intubation. And if we look to some of the adult data on this, um, I think what we see is that one of the interesting factors that is associated with the risk of NIV failure is in fact the tidal volume that the adults are generating. And those that are generating high tidal volumes, uh, median tidal volumes of over nine and a half mls per kilo, at a 40 to 80% risk of being intubated in contrast to the you know, patients that generated a, a smaller or normal tidal volume, less than nine mls per kilo, that only had a 20% risk of being intubated. And so this this gets into this question about uh, patient self-inflicted lung injury. And this is a a nice animal study done by Takeshi Yoshida um, from Japan, which highlights that if you use a low, if patients are generating a low tidal volume, even with a strong amount of, of spontaneous respiratory effort that the alveoli look relatively normal. That's what you see on the top slides there and in particular on the top right. But once they start to achieve more of a moderate or potentially high tidal volume, and especially if you have high amounts of respiratory effort, like in the bottom right panel, then these patients have more and more evidence of lung injury. So it it gets at this concept of patient self-inflicted lung injury, that you have this initial injury to the lung that leads to capillary leak and lung edema, that leads to impaired gas exchange and respiratory mechanics, and the patient's response to that is to increase their respiratory drive. Now, as they're increasing their respiratory drive, they now have very large swings in their pleural pressure. Those swings in their pleural pressure reduce end expiratory, you know, end expiratory pressure and expiratory lung volume, leading to atelectrauma. trauma. They also have high tidal volume, leading potentially to volume trauma, volume trauma, and then high total transpulmonary pressure or barotrauma, as well as some additional mechanisms like penduliff that might be important here in terms of creating this cycle of patient self-inflicted lung injury. Now, there have been, I'd say, some very interesting recent adult papers that implicate the importance of patient self-inflicted lung injury on worsening organ dysfunction. Um, But this was, I think, a a very provocative paper that came out, you know, five years ago now in the New England Journal. Um, In adults with hypoxemic respiratory failure, they were randomly assigned to one of three groups, high flow oxygen, standard oxygen, or non-invasive ventilation, with hundred patients in each group. And what they found um, was in fact, those that were on, managed on high flow nasal cannula were intubated 30% of the time compared to a 50% intubation rate for those on either non-invasive ventilation or standard oxygen therapy. And that actually translated into a survival benefit. So patients on high flow actually were more likely to survive compared to standard oxygen or non-invasive ventilation. And so you may ask, how could this be, right? What are the mechanisms here? And, and it could be that in fact, high flow nasal cannula, one of the main mechanisms of action is through dead space washout. So if you're getting good CO2 clearance that's there and reducing respiratory drive, perhaps we're reducing that risk of patient self-inflicted lung injury. So I, I'd say that the degree of hypoxemia is actually absolutely important for us to pay attention to, but really the decisions to intubate, I think really need to be driven more by the patient's risk for self-inflicted lung injury, i.e. what is their work of breathing. Um, as far as what mode of ventilation to use, um, I think it depends a lot on the patient and I'm not sure that I have the right answer to this. I think CPAP and BiPAP are probably what I would start with if I think the patient has a recruitable lung. Uh, But if they don't, and they have just high degrees of respiratory drive, then perhaps high flow nasal cannula, in fact, might be a more appropriate thing to start with if it can reduce that respiratory drive. But I think probably what's most important is that whichever one you choose that you assess that response immediately. So give the patient 30 minutes and then if things are not getting better, either switch the mode or or progress and move to intubate that patient. Um, I'd actually like to ask Peter the next question. Um, and that's, that's about PEEP management. So so Peter, there is this debate about whether we should be using a more conservative PEEP approach um, and how should we be titrating PEEP in these patients?
6: Well, Robbie, if you would ask me, should I limit my PEEP below 10 or below 15 in uh, COVID-18 or COVID-19 yeah, these patients, I would clearly say no. If you ask me should we titrate, I have to say yes. So, as Rob alluded to, we might have this L-type, this H-type uh, type of injury or lung injury. On the right side, you see this H-type, high elastance, low compliance. And I think it's important to remember, it means low compliance, which more or less the classical ARS pictures. And that's what we see in COVID patients with uh, bacterial infection, uh, usually later on in the course. On the left side, you see what Katynonis group called the L-type, so the lowest elastinous or normal compliance. And there you'll see this grass, uh, these uh, uh, ground glass opacity. so it's sticky mucus in peripheral airways. And if you think about sticky mucus, then you may already understand that probably approaching these PIP and trying to recruit might be not the optimal approach. So in this type of patient, we would consider, I would consider to use much more conservative PEEP approach which might be below 8, below 10, even. Whereas in the classic AR, this patient, the, the classical AR, these recommendations uh, will we, we'll have to be followed. So the low PEEP FR table, table approach, as has been shown by Robbie's group uh, previously, that uh, if you use a PEEP slightly above this uh, PEEP FR table outcome was much better than below. And yes, you see also with the great bars here that most of the people, certainly if it's going in more severe ARDS type injury that they use uh, usually too low PIPs. So I think we can, however, pretty simplified. If you think about the basic concepts for PIP management, then you have to ask you the question, do I stay in phase of marked hypoxemic respiratory failure? Or do I stay, do I have ARDS in front of me? on the ARDS means the patient would have to have low compliance as well. So respiratory system compliance should be low uh, amongst bilateral infiltrates according to classical definitions. So this is usually practic- uh, quite difficult to assess in front of a patient in the first step. You see the hypoxia patient, you get the tubing, and now what should I do with my PEEP? And therefore, because it's difficult to understand what you have in front of you, we would consider to start always a low PEEP. And then if you have a low compliance condition, which you can easily, assess, as the bedside, even just using more or less the dynamic uh, compliance, uh, you can think about the low PEEP effort, 2 table, and think about uh, doing uh, recruitment approaches. Uh, Whereas if you have a preserved compliance, you should remain uh, pretty careful Uh, with this approach because, as you have seen, it's a different type of pathology. However, we must uh, admit that so far we are not so clear about where we can see this distinct differentiation between the L and the H type in in children. So, therefore, our recommendations from ESMIC are going initially with a quite low PIP approach. With titration based on the ARDS net low, the low PEEP FIO table. If you have uh, an improvement in this titration in terms of oxygenation, might be the right way to go, but careful, uh, maintaining saturation 92 to 96 for moderate ARDS and titrate, certainly PEEP based on oxygenation and hemodynamics. Just remember, high PEEP might be necessary for those with more impaired lung compliance, which is the more classical ARDS picture. So uh, with this, I would uh, ask now, uh, Heidi, a bit more about the situation of uh, staff protection, uh, provider protection, uh, with the use of non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula. So how do we balance the risk of aerosol generation on NIV or high-flow nasal cannula for the providers. Uh, when we change, certainly when we ponderate is again, earlier intubation to better control aerosols. And also another thing is how to deal with aerosol during high-frequency oscillation.
5: As you can see, we've really referenced to the ESPNIC guidelines, which are currently in press. So uh, again, to be expeditious, It is absolutely true that we as providers, especially depending on ages and comorbidities, may be at a much greater risk uh, than our patients for severe disease. That also may not be true, of course, but uh, so everybody needs to maintain strict PPE, whether they're on high flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, conventional ventilation, and particularly with high frequency oscillatory ventilation. There actually isn't that much data, so we definitely need more research in the area. With regard to non-invasive ventilation interfaces, absolutely it relates to the seal. And so in, the, in the Europe, we know that there is um, helmet CPAP that's available, which uh, seems to be quite uh, effective in limiting a dispersion of aerosols and droplets. Um, and if possible, to using a non-vented or oral, oral nasal mask for non-invasive ventilatory support um, is also potentially going to limit aerosol use. Uh, for high-flow nasal cannula, um, it is actually going to be very important uh, to uh, mitigate dispersion when patients cough, sneeze, or remove their high-flow nasal cannula device. So although there may potentially be less dispersion with high-flow nasal cannula, it relates to a movement of device and flow being used. For ventilators, as you can see on the slide, we all recommend cuffed endotracheal tubes at all ages, uh, which may or may not be our common practice for every patient, particularly those without COVID, although many of us are using cuff tubes. Expiratory limb circuits, whether it's a conventional ventilator, a home ventilator, a non-invasive ventilator, and certainly on uh, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, needs to be scavenged. There's some data, uh, unfortunately, from healthcare worker exposure in the first SARS epidemic in Toronto, particularly with high-frequency oscillatory ventilator use in the adults, that describe pretty significant healthcare worker exposure. So HEPA filters, uh, viral filters, need to be on the expiratory limb no matter what circuit you're using. And I caution people, when you have patients on home mechanical ventilators coming into the ED or coming into your ICU on their home ventilator, that needs to be scavenged immediately as well. And certainly, of course, as they escalate care. So I think we talked briefly about high flow nasal cannula. Um, There is some great data from Toronto sick kids where they've done infant experiments uh, and really the dispersion of gas using those experimental models is limited except when you sneeze or cough. And so there is some recommendation that maybe patients on high flow nasal cannula should actually have a simple mask on top of that to limit dispersion. Um, Although there is again, limited data um, except for some of these um, in vitro models. Um, again, avoiding uh, open tracheal suctioning is really important. So closed suctioning, again, being really a key, key distinction. And I think one thing that's not quite on this slide, but we need, we've discussed a couple of times, is that many of our patients might be primarily sick from their RSV or influenza and might have asthma symptoms. And then they're conveniently co-infected with SARS-CoV-2. So they will disperse if we give them also aerosols of any kind. That what aerosols do, albuterol, et cetera. So we have to be really cautious about that. And that's a difficult thing because we're not going to intubate every asthmatic who comes in who might be co-infected with SARS-CoV-2. So again, PP is the key. So this is based from the PROSPECT randomized control trial. This is the expiratory limb scavenging model that's being proposed. You can see Dr. Martin Kneiber. Um, from the Netherlands has uh, given us this uh, descriptor here for our presentation. But these, uh, this uh, technique and the technology for this can be provided um, and I think is eligible to be viewed from the prospect website, even if you're not participating in the trial. So um, scavenging on the expiratory limb is quite important, particularly for high-frequency ventilation, and, very, and limiting, limiting disconnections at all costs. So to close, I think really we have to be careful to limit uh, aerosol generating procedures which are operationally defined differently across the world. But most people consider um, use of aerosols, use of non-invasive support, uh, mechanical ventilation, particularly needing suctioning, high frequency oscillatory ventilation, the process of intubation, bronchoscopy, the list is uh, long going, but uh, er- erring on the side of caution and considering more things aerosol generating than less can provide best protection for healthcare workers. And we absolutely need more data on aerosols, on droplets, how long they uh, remain in the air, what ventilation can limit this, etc. So more to come in this front.
0: Thank you. Okay. Here is our first case. This is a
5: 16-year-old girl, female, with three days of high fever and cough. She's 168 centimeters tall, 65 kilograms in weight. That's 23, uh, a BMI of 23. Her heart rate's 130. She's tachypnic with a respiratory rate of 35. She initially saturates 75% on room air, but then increases to 92% on 15 liters of non-rebreather oxygen. Her blood pressure is 108 over 78. She's placed on heated high flow nasal cannula in the ED at 50 liters and 80% FiO2. And this brings her saturation up to 93%. On exam, however, she's only slightly tachypnic. She does not have any accessory muscle use and she can speak to you in six to seven word sentences. She started on dexamethasone, remdesivir, ceftriaxin and dancomycin, and she's proven to have a positive SARS-CoV-2 PCR. This is her x-ray. Okay, so your first polling question is coming up and we'd like you to pick one choice. Um, what would be the next step in your management? The scenario is on the left side of the slide and the choices are coming up. Here's your poll. Please answer once. Okay, so here is our poll. So it seems like uh, about a quarter of the uh, respondents would continue on the high flow and about 50% would try prone positioning while on high flow. Perfect. Okay, so now she evolves over the next three hours and her FiO2 is escalated to 100%. She's positioned prone and placed on NIV because of her worsening oxygenation, and then she's subsequently intubated. Her ventilator settings now are on assist control, pressure control, and she's neuromuscularly blocked for intubation. Her respiratory rate's 24, her peak inspiratory pressure 22, her plateau pressure 20 with a PEEP of eight. Her eye time is one second, and this generates a tidal volume of eight mLs per kilo of predicted body weight. She's on 90% FiO2 with a saturation again of 93 and a mean airway pressure of 14. She has a blood gas of 734, 48 and 64. And together this generates an OI of 19.6 and a PF ratio of 71. So now you're going to be asked two questions. What would you do next with regards to her ventilator management and her PEEP? And the second question, Are there any additional therapies you'd like to apply now? Again, pick one uh, answer for each question. And here is your poll. Okay, so for question one, it looks like we have a lot of distribution. About a third of the respondents would increase the PEEP to 15. A quarter would do a recruitment maneuver with incremental and decremental PEEP. 20% 20% would go to the oscillator or APRV, 15% would stay, stay the course. In terms of other therapies, a lot of people want to position her prone and a few would start neuromuscular blockade or inhaled nitric oxide and then there's a smattering of others. Okay, so what would doctors Kamani and Remensberger do? These are how they would have answered those three questions. Both would have maintained on high flow initially both would have tried an incremental and decremental PEEP maneuver for recruitment and Robbie would have started NO and Peter gets to have two choices and he would position prone and then second choice would try an INO trial. Okay, now I'm handing it over to you, Robbie.
4: Excited? Yes, P- Peter gets to vote, vote twice. I think it's a Swiss privilege there we're going to split the the explanations here. So for the first question, as far as what to do for this patient that's on high-flow nasal cannula, uh, most of the people uh, agreed with either keeping the patient on high-flow nasal cannula, about a quarter it looked like wanted to switch to non-invasive ventilation, and then many thought about combining high-flow nasal cannula with prone position. Uh, the, The fundamental point here is that this patient is fitting into that phenotype by which she really doesn't have very high effort or work of breathing or respiratory drive. And really the decision to intubate, as we talked about on the, on the last webinar, for those of you that were there, um, should be driven by that risk of patient self-inflicted lung injury, which is driven really by respiratory mechanics and work of breathing. So we can truly tolerate a higher FiO2 on this patient um, as compared to you know, a patient with more classic forms of ARDS. And that's really <clears throat> at the heart of not only the approach for choosing when to intubate, but also the approach for PEEP management. And as we uh, discussed last time, there are these two theoretical phenotypes uh, really with COVID-19 ARDS, and maybe these phenotypes even exist with other forms of viral-induced ARDS versus other other forms of ARDS. The L-type, which is the low elastins, i.e. normal compliance phenotype, these patients may be very hypoxemic, but the degree of hypoxemia is quite out of proportion with their lung mechanics. And so these patients actually have a low ability to recruit lung, and we need to take a bit more of a conservative PEEP management strategy for this these types of patients. And, and she really falls into that group. The, the H-type, in uh, contrast, is the high elastance or low compliance, the more classic forms of ARDS that we think about. And these patients generally have more recruitable lung, although not always. Um, and so here we may take a little bit more aggressive approach to PEEP management. So how do we know that this patient really fits into that L phenotype, well, we get our first hint of it really when looking at her clinical exam when she's on high-flow nasal cannula, that there's really not a lot of effort of breathing. Now, that can be difficult sometimes in a 16-year-old patient to be able to assess how much work they're doing. Nevertheless, she's not not particularly tachypnic, and all of the other signs that we have don't really point to the fact that the work of breathing is high. Then when she's intubated, we can really get a true measure of this and we can measure what her static compliance is. And as a reminder, static compliance is the tidal volume divided by the driving pressure. And we typically think of this in pediatrics as normalizing the tidal volume to mLs per kilo. So the numerator is tidal volume in mLs per kilo divided by the driving pressure, which is the plateau pressure minus the PEEP. So in her circumstance, she had a tidal volume of eight mLs per kilo, plateau pressure of 20, PEEP of eight. And as you can see there, there's the compliance Uh, calculation of 0.67. As we look to the pediatric literature, that would fall into a sort of mildly impaired compliance if we look at the table below from the modified lung injury score. And this, in fact, is the same method that was, uh, you know, applied if we look at the ARDSNet-ARMA trial in the top right there. And that's the distribution of, of static compliance in those adult patients with ARDS managed with six versus 12 mls per kilo, And what we see in that study is that only a quarter of the patients had a compliance above 0.63. So she would fall into that high compliance or preserved, you know, preserved compliance group. And interestingly, you know, even with the ARMA trial we see that there are potentially different results in terms of the effect of tidal volume on outcome based upon compliance and that the higher compliance group may in fact have a different relationship. Now I'm gonna hand it over to Peter here to, to talk a little bit more about plateau pressure measurements.
6: So maybe i just take the chance to clarify bit it is plateau pressure measurements or how we measure compliance at bedside. On the top, you see a classical volume control situation. with a peak pressure and then a plateau phase. And you realize when the plateau phase is occurring that the flow is at zero. So the inspirate flow comes to zero. And this is often confusing then for people and for most of us we're ventilating on pressure control mode where we have a plateau pressure looks like, which we usually call the the peak or the positive inspiratory pressure plateau. And you can see on the left hand on the A, uh, you can see if the flow comes down to zero, you have a plateau. If you prolong now with an inspiratory hold this plateau, your peak and the plateau pressure remain the same because the lung was fully filling up because flow came back to zero at this pressure settings. Whereas on the right side, when you cut your inspiratory flow means you have a too short inspiratory time, then you have to do a inspiratory hold maneuver to bring down the flow to zero to get equilibrium between in and outside pressure. Means in this situation, the plateau pressure is smaller than the peak pressure as you saw before. And also what is important to remember for all these measurements, you have to have also a zero flow condition at end expiration. So, now the questions come how would we titrate PEEP? So, in this patient, we learned now, or we realized he has a moderately reduced uh, compliance. Uh, it's probably a lung that is not so recruitable according to this L or H type uh, criteria. And there is a certain risk of overdistension. So, I will start with a relatively low PEEP, eight to 10 centimeters in this case. And then, however, try a gentle stepwise increase in PEEP in small steps and I will be very careful not to go too high up. If the lung is clearly not recruiting, I might even stop lower. If the lung appears to be recruiting as we uh, can judge by an increase in oxygenation and usually we have to look out for the hemodynamic compromise and make sure there is none. uh, I would do a slow incremental peep titration afterwards after recruiting, trying to reach if there's no increase in Fi2 when going down, a PEEP level according to low PEEP, high HFO grid and reduced tidal volumes to around six mil per kilo. Whereas Robin, and Vivian we discussed, he would do a decremental PEEP titration to identify area which balances compliance, oxygenation, hemodynamics. If the lung is not recruiting, I would consider it to be quite pragmatic and return to low PEEP setting where Robbie, however, would do also again a, a decremental peep titration after a recruitment attempt. And then we, can, we have some additional options Options in uh, this question what would you do else? So, if PF ratio remains low, I would position this patient if he's intubated after peep titration. And just to remind you that you can do a wake prone when on high-flow uh, high nasal cannula patients on spontaneous breathing has been shown, certainly in the adults, to improve in some of the cases oxygenation. And uh, to, just remember, prone position is an important approach in trying to improve recruitment, or also uh, it may have an effect on oxygenation by uh, changing VQ mismatches. Uh, nitric oxide, in my hand, is a second option in this case with a severe hypoxemia, I would give a 10 minutes test with nitric oxide. If there is a response, I would go on with it. If there is no response, I would stop it. So I'll hand back to Heidi.
5: Yeah, Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. So now we are positing a slightly different scenario with the same patient. Again, 16-year-old female, three days of fever, uh, heart rate initially 135. She's an, a little more tachypneic in this scenario, respiratory rate of 45, but again increases from 75% sat to 92 initially on, on non-rebreather, and then she's placed on the same 50 liters of 80% FiO2, again increasing the saturation from 92 to 93%. Now, however, on her exam, she has much more worker breathing. She has moderate accessory muscle use. She's quite tachypneic and she can only speak to you now in two to three word sentences. She gets started on the same uh, treatments, dexamethasone, remdesivir, ceftriaxone, vancomycin. And again, she is PCR positive for SARS-CoV-2. Next slide. Here is her x-ray. This is one we are more typical to see in prior patients. Okay, so again, the same set of questions for you. The uh, patient scenarios on the left of this slide. And again, what would your next step in your management be? Uh, Again, choose one. All right. So a majority would intubate and begin invasive mechanical ventilation. Although uh, a few would transition to non-invasive ventilation and give give that an opportunity too with a smattering continuing on high flow or probe positioning on high flow. Okay, so she's intubated and again, she's placed on assist, assist control, pressure control and neuromuscularly blocked for intubation. Her respiratory rate's 30, her peak pressure now is 30 with an increased plateau pressure up to 28. Again, her peep is starting at eight, her eye time is one second, but she generates with this only a tidal volume of five ml per kilo, predicted body weight. Again, on 90% FiO2, her saturation is 93%, and her mean airway pressure is now 19. Her ABG, 7.30, 56, 64, and this generates an OI of 27, but her PF ratio remains 71. We're going to ask you again the same two questions. Again, please choose one answer for each. Question one, again, what would you do in regards to ventilator management and PEEP Question two, are there other therapies you would apply now? Okay. And here it goes. Again, you can scroll down uh, on your screen to get the other choices for question number two. Please choose uh, one answer for each question. And here it is. So a smattering across many options here in terms of increasing PEEP because there are parts, recruitment maneuvers with decremental PEEP titration transition to high frequency. And then in terms of other therapies, a lot of prone positioning again, some neuromuscular blockade and some NO. So what would the gentleman do? Okay, Dr. Kamani and Dr. Remensberger again are matching up perfectly here, intubate, incremental and decremental peep steps and continuous neuromuscular blockade. And Dr. Remensberger gets a second choice for prone positioning one more time. And uh, I will hand it over again for final comments.
4: So uh, so here really it's the flip side of the scenario that's presented. Uh, and and the risk for patient self-inflicted lung injury is quite high in this on this girl, uh, given her high work of breathing that's present there. So in these scenarios with her relatively severe disease and severe hypoxemia really are uh, my recommendation is to go straight towards intubating and not even thinking about using uh, an intermediary of non-invasive ventilation with the sort of trajectory that she's on. If I think non-invasive ventilation is considered, you should only give it a very short period of time, 30 minutes to maybe an hour at the most to really see that she has a dramatic response. Um, and really that's what's driving it, is a risk of, of self-inflicted lung injury. Now, as far as PEEP titration, if we go through that same compliance calculation that we did last time, what we see here is that this this patient now has very severely impaired static compliance or compliance is 0.25, which is in that very severe range. Um, So here I would still take that same approach for PEEP management of an incremental increase for recruitment followed by a decremental PEEP titration to identify that sort of sweet spot between oxygenation compliance and hemodynamics. But what's really different about this case is we can imagine she's going to have more recruitable lung or at least we hope she has more recruitable lung. So in all likelihood, we need to take a a larger increase in the PEEP, the PEEP will likely be higher that we go to uh, compared to where we were in that first case. Now, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to take a more empiric approach of increasing the PEEP, for example, to 15, but really we should be looking at the mechanics of the patient to find that optimal PEEP point. Um, Peter, I think, is going to talk about the next couple of points. So next slide, please.
6: Yeah, so as an additional option, when oxygen oxygenation remains poor, and here we have a PF ratio below 150, and the compliance is low. So this uh, is the full picture of a severe ARDS. I would consider to paralyze the patient for 24 to 48 hours. In absence of respiratory efforts of the patient, it is easier to take over control of lung protective ventilation, certainly as large transpulmonary pressure swings can be reduced when the patient has no breathing uh, efforts. Uh, the latter so to be responsible for the patient's self-inflicted lung injury. Furthermore, I would try prone possession based on adult data, which may have a recruitment effect and may therefore improve oxygenation and can also help to better homogenize lung volumes and pressures next. So uh, some other considerations to take in account, if your plateau pressure post-recruiter remains high, or if your distending pressure is about 15 centimeters of water, I would try further to reduce tidal volumes to three, four mil per kilogram and increase rate to maintain minute ventilation. If it's this, you get severe CO2 retention, respiratory acidosis, I would consider high-frequency oscillation. If you don't have frequency oscillation, you're not used to, or if you're an ecmo center, I think you can consider and should consider this condition extracorporeal life support. Next slide. To summarize, the palliative recommendations are applicable in patients with COVID-19-related classical picture in terms of tidal volume, pressure settings, recruitment attempts. Oxygenation targets remain the same and permissive fabric can be allowed for. So in severe ARDS, neuromuscular blockade and prone position should be considered. Uh,
1: Thank you all very much. We will will be back uh, on November 7th, I believe it is. Um, Be well, everyone.
0: This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.